Thank you all for uh, giving me this opportunity to preach. It is a privilege and kind of crazy. Uh, yeah, I'm a member here at Indelible Grace Church. And as some people would say, I'm just a spring chicken. So I really appreciate um, you bearing with someone as young as me um, to preach up here. I'm going to take a moment just to adjust this... Uh, So, yeah, Indelible Grace Church. It's kind of crazy how I ended up here. I grew up in the Bay Area, um, Pleasanton, California. I actually heard about Indelible Grace Church just after my sophomore year in high school. Um, I went to a short-term mission trip, and Tommy Wong was there, and he was telling me about this church plant in Castro Valley. So... That was like way back, more than 10 years ago, I think, or almost that, almost 10 years. And then I visited Indelible Grace in, right after college. And then came back um, from Kentucky. And then I was looking for churches. I knew about Indelible. And after the first um, visit to a community group, decided this is it. So uh, truly providential kind of uh, full circle. So today I'll be preaching on Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. That's in your bulletin. I believe that'll also be on the screen. Feel free to turn there if you need to. And it kind of ties into our series that the church is going through on the spiritual disciplines um, because it talks about our death to sin and the new life we have in Christ. Um, It's really about the like foundational source of how we can even... Um, be with Christ at all, and why spiritual disciplines are effective. Um, So I'm going to read our text for today, and then I'll pray for us. So Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God, in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. Yeah, Heavenly Father, 
uh, just thank you for this time that we can hear from you. Um, I pray, God, that I would really serve your church today. Um, I pray that I would serve your word um, and lift it up to your people. I pray, God, that you would speak through uh, my words and anything that's not from you would not stick at all <laughs> in people's minds. And so I pray, God, for the power of the Holy Spirit to um, yeah, work in me <laughs> as I preach, work in everyone who hears. I pray, God, that our preaching and our hearing would be like a prayer to you and a song that delights your ears. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So at some point in your life, if you're a Christian, you'll probably ask the question, if I'm forgiven, <laughs> then why do I need to keep obeying God's commandments? And normally this isn't a question you just ask in theory. Um, it usually comes when you just sinned. You're frustrated with how hard it is to not sin. And suddenly a theology or a rationale for obedience becomes something of intense interest when obedience seems so difficult. And maybe after talking yourself down from completely disregarding obedience, you're still sad, um, you're still discouraged, and you say, okay, God, I want to obey you, but if I'm a Christian, then why do I keep wanting to sin so much? And the answer you give to that question can really affect how you view your relationship with God. Uh, growing up, I've had friends who walked away from Christianity. Um, and it's because they thought to themselves, you know, it'd be better for me to either be fully bought into Jesus or not. And when they looked at their strong, continued desire to sin, they decided, <laughs> you know, it'd just be better not to be a hypocrite. And I'll just say that I'm not a Christian anymore and live like that. And that's tragic. It's also not too hard to imagine. Every person who confesses Christ feels the gap between who they are and who they want to be and know they should be. And if you're like me, uh, you can look at your small, dim, easily distracted desire for God. And you might ask the same kind of questions my friends ask. And then when you hear a passage like we read in Romans, you wonder, how is what Paul said true? How can he say that I'm dead to sin when it still seems like I continue to sin and struggle to resist sin all the time? How can Paul say the old self was crucified with him, that is Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing? How can Paul say, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And it's these tensions, but also these truths that I'll be preaching on. And I hope you find strength and encouragement in what Paul has to say to us. So I'll start by stating the main point of today's sermon, which is this. Because you have died with Christ, you have died to sin. 
and can pursue holiness because of the life-giving grace of Jesus. Because you have died to sin, because you have died with Christ, you have died to sin and you can pursue holiness because of the life-giving grace of Jesus. And usually in main points, I don't like it when there's phrases that need to be unpacked. Um, but it's kind of <laughs> what our text gives us today. We're going to look at, you know, what does it mean that we've died with Christ? What does it mean that we're dead to sin? And why does that mean you can't just keep on sinning, even though you're fully forgiven? So look with me. We're going to get started at verses 1 to 4. And I'll read for us these verses. Verses 1 to 4. Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so the first point of today's sermon is because you have died with Christ, you can walk in a new way of life. Now, in order to understand Paul's opening sentences here, you need to understand that we're jumping into Paul's letter kind of like in the middle of a drama. (laughs) And the drama Paul is handling is the objection his hearers could raise to his gospel of free and abounding grace. In the preceding chapters of Romans, Paul has been laying out how God deals with the problem of human sin and the wrath we deserve. And the essence of Paul's answer is that Quite scandalously, the righteousness we need to be right with God doesn't come through our human efforts or works, but through the free gift of God's grace come to us through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And so against that backdrop of human sin, God's grace rises up to provide the free gift of our salvation. And as Paul summarizes in an astounding way, this is the end of chapter 5, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so you can imagine people who were hearing Paul ask, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more? So shouldn't we sin more so that grace abounds even more? And that's the question that Paul's answering for us at the beginning of this chapter. How is it that God's grace and salvation doesn't enable sin, but actually destroys it? And so Paul asks, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he responds, by no means. And so you ask, why? Why would we not? And maybe your gut answer is, because that would be so ungrateful for God's grace. Or maybe, I mean, God was so gracious to forgive you at the beginning, but he'll punish you if you abuse his grace. Those might be our gut answers, but Paul doesn't go there. Instead, he says verbatim, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Instead, Paul appeals to what has been done in and to us as the basis for why we can't just keep sinning after receiving grace. Instead, Paul says, 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so Paul's answer to why the Christian cannot and must not abuse God's grace is not that God's patience will wear thin and he'll get angry again. Paul's answer is that there has been a decisive transformation that we have undergone, which makes it impossible to remain in a state of a continual abuse of his grace. It's kind of crazy, but let's, let's go into that. So this decisive transformation, Paul communicates that through his language of baptism, death, and burial. These words communicate to us two things. Our identification with Jesus and the resulting transformation of our relationship to sin. Our baptism into Jesus' death communicates our identification with him because in Romans, baptism is Paul's shorthand for our conversion experience. It points to how Christians... Um, have been baptized into Christ so that while before we were separated from him, we are now so close to Jesus, we are in him and we share in the effects and benefits of his life, death, and resurrection. And something happens because of that when we're baptized into Jesus and that changes our prior relationship to sin. And next, these words communicate transformation because it was through Christ's death that the power of sin was broken. And so the key idea here is that Jesus dying not only atoned for the penalty of our sins, but it removed the power of sin over saved humanity, over those who have been baptized into him. So whereas before you could only sin because you were enslaved to it, you're now dead to sin and freed and able to resist it and live in the open air of God's reign of grace. And this is what we see Paul expand upon in verses 6 and 7. This is in the next uh, paragraph, but it kind of says it all there. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if this is like a very <laughs> new way of thinking about who you are in Jesus, that's very understandable because we're really not wired to think this way in our like individualistic American culture. So in our self-made American culture, we don't really think about <clears throat> transformation happening through association or relationship. You don't tell somebody who wants to lose weight or get healthier or someone who is struggling with mental health or depression. You know, if you get to know so-and-so, their health will totally transform yours. But that's the way the Bible speaks about our inner renewal. For example, just in the preceding chapter, Romans 5, Paul talks about how salvation, it's not through our own deeds, but it comes through who we belong to. 
Are you in Christ as your head or are you under Adam? You're, it's an organic metaphor where you're the body and your head is either Adam or Jesus. And who you're connected to determines your destiny. And so this corporate, communal, relational way of thinking about life continues here. It's who you are in relationship that transforms who you are. And to illustrate this, I'll borrow from the business world. Um, because you could kind of think about this like a merger and acquisition. And for those who aren't too familiar with that, it's basically when a company buys another company. So if you're part of a failing company, your CEO is your head and he's leading you into a corporate death. (laughs) Your fate is bad. But if a bigger acquiring company like Salesforce comes in and buys you out, the benefits of being part of this larger company are now yours. The history of that company is now your history. The quarterly revenue reports reflect who you are. Mark Benioff, the Salesforce CEO, is your CEO. And the old CEO does not control you anymore. It kind of works the same way with our baptism into Christ. You used to live in sin and spiritual enslavement to sin's power. But now that you've been baptized in Christ, you have a new master. And Jesus gives you a new life with that. And so as we're in this series on spiritual disciplines... If you're ever going to understand where a sustained desire and energy for obedience will come from, you'll be hindered if you stay in an individualistic and isolated understanding of your Christian life. Because the initiation of your holy life doesn't come from your determination to do more or better. But it started with God identifying you with Christ through him baptizing you into Jesus' death and resurrection. And it doesn't just start there, it stays there. And so practically what this means is if you want to walk in a new way of life, you need to keep going to be with the person who gave you life. And I don't want... Yeah, it's not an overly simplistic, you know, just look to Jesus and everything will change. You don't need disciplines or duty or plans. But it does mean that at the very core of why you do all those things, it's to come to be with him, to be with Jesus in all the ways he meets us. And so part of that, it is individual. It's hearing his voice in scripture. It's gazing on him in silent meditation. It requires you to believe in the gospel and stop assessing yourself all the time and hear his voice that says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Part of meeting Jesus is also meeting him in his body, the church. And so the spiritual life of abiding with Christ is not monastic, but it involves regularly including other Christians in your life because Jesus meets you through his body. You will find grace in life when you fellowship with Christ through knowing other believers. 
It happens when you talk about spiritual things. It happens when you confess your sins. It happens when you live your life openly with other people. And so the first point of today's sermon was because you have died with Christ, you can now walk in a new way of life. Now, in this next point, I want to focus on the question, what exactly does it mean that you've died to sin? And I want to focus on that question because in verses 5 to 11, Paul, Paul writes, leads up to this one command in verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. But what does that mean to consider ourselves dead to sin? Look with me at verses 5 to 11. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So let's, let's break these verses down. Paul reiterates the central point he just made, that we have died with Christ and we are dead to sin and freed from it. But he also adds another layer. He surrounds that truth with a future hope, a certain hope that comes from the fact that just as we were united to the death of Jesus, we've also been united to the life of Jesus in his resurrection. That's verse 5. Verses 6 and 7 then restate the realities we covered in our first point, while verses 8, 9, and 10 all build up and crescendo to point us to the new resurrection life we have with Christ. Verse 8 encapsulates this when Paul says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And then in verses 9 and 10, we get the basis for that. The death that Jesus died was once for all. It was a death that conquered death so that both death and sin no longer have any dominion over him. And because we were united to that death, we have freedom from their power as well. And so now because of the journey Christ has made from death to life, Paul tells us, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So at this point, we've seen that Paul has established some very consequential things that have happened to us because of our identification with Jesus and the transformation of our relationship to sin. And the language Paul uses is astonishingly strong. Our old self was crucified that our body of sin might be brought to nothing. But it's at this point where I think everyone can in some way be asking the question, Okay, that's all well and good, but what does that do for me? <laughs> Every day I struggle and to even want to do what I know I should do. 
And sometimes I barely feel like I want to do what God commands. I certainly don't, it certainly doesn't seem like I've died to sin. And I want to dial in here, and I think it could be helpful to provide a clarification for what, it, what, what does it mean when Paul says you've died to sin? Being dead to sin, it doesn't mean you're invulnerable or inert to sin. It doesn't mean that you're emotionless corpse, and no matter how much sin tries to tempt you, sin can't get reaction out of you. And how, how can I say that? I can say that because in verse 12, Paul has to tell us, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So it's a fact that people who are dead to sin can still let sin reign. So then what does it mean? The Christian's death to sin is less about becoming invulnerable to the presence and allure of sin. I mean, how many of you experienced that, you know, (laughs) the moment you got saved? But what it refers to is a decisive break or a death from, from one realm where sin had reigning power and then an entrance by resurrection to another realm where Christ reigns. And so the language of death is about exiting a state of existence where sin ruled and through resurrection entering a state where Christ rules. And so while you're on this earth, you exist, so to speak, while these realms are at war, and that's what you feel. You have genuinely exited one realm where sin dominated your life, but sin as a power still exists. Even if it doesn't own you, you can still bend your knee to the wrong king. And to illustrate this, it's kind of like as if you were once an orphan. And you've been given keys to a new family home. You know, the, mo- the moment those papers are signed, your family embraces you. <laughs> you lay down on that new bed. Your, new- your old life has ended. You're under a new roof now, and the love of- and care of your parents begin changing you on the inside as well. You don't have to fend for yourself, brave the cold, harsh world by yourself, but you're still susceptible to living as though all those new changes never happened. And so that's why Paul has to command our command us to consider ourselves as we really are, dead to sin and alive to God. What Paul is doing is he's establishing that the basis for our resistance to sin, that we can even do that at all with meaning and and some victory. And we see that coming up in the next verses, let not sin reign. The basis of that is that we have genuinely exited the realm where sin dominated us and we're no longer people that are friendly to this enemy territory. God has done a real work in you, transferring transferring you from the realm of darkness into the kingdom of light. You have a new heart, you have new desires, you have a new master, but you're not fully transformed. And so you have to regularly go back to the gospel and believe that what God has done in you is true. That you are dead to your old master and alive to God. It's especially important to to consider ourselves this way because, you know, for the Christian, when you survey your life, often what stands out to you is not the amazing freedom you now have, but the constant assault on your morality. 
that comes from existing in an age when two realms are at war. And so perhaps, so perhaps very uh, ironically, but very much aligned with our lived experience, our escape from the fundamental dominion of sin is what creates in us the intensity of struggle. Our old master still has a foothold in us because of our remaining sin. And that brings the war between those two realms right into the middle of who we are. I want to encourage you here because if you understand the epic and cosmic proportions of the spiritual battle you find yourself in, then the fight to resist sin and present yourself to God in righteousness, it's not just a priority for being a generally better person. It's the struggle between two realms. One that is passing away under the power of sin and the other which God has pulled us into and which we remain in through our continued abiding in Christ. I also want to say a word here of encouragement um, in terms of like an implication of us being dead to sin. The encouragement is that what this means is when you do fail to beat sin and you succumb again to that enemy power, you don't start all over from the place of being enslaved to it. You sinned, but you're still dead to sin. Sin is not your master, even when you go back to you, the wrong master. And this is so encouraging and so important because as you grapple with the deep darkness and remaining sin that's in you, one of the lies you can be tempted to believe is that your ongoing fight with sin is a sign that you're still enslaved completely to it. And if you believe that, you'll want to give up. You'll get so discouraged. You'll think, you know, what's the point? I'm a total failure. But when that happens, you have to look back at what Paul has said. Look to Jesus, confess your sin, and obey God who says, so you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so that leads me to our third point of today's sermon. Because you have been given life, take a hold of it. Look with me at verses 12 to 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And so here, after Paul, here Paul, after 11 verses of telling us what God has done and a call to believe it, he takes his hearers by the callers and says, and so because of these truths, live. Let not sin reign. Don't present your members unto unrighteousness. Present yourself to God as one alive and your body as an instrument of righteousness. 
And at that very last verse, in verse 14, Paul comes back to that objective, foundational, gracious work that, of God that makes this all possible. For sin will have no dominion over you, because you are no longer under law, which refers to the old reign of sin prior to Christ, but you're under grace, which is the life we have from Christ's resurrection. And so in this section, I want to come back to the questions I opened up with at the start of today's sermon. Why do we need to obey God if we're forgiven? Why not keep on sinning that grace may abound? And what I hope has been made clear is that when we were saved, we weren't just acquitted of our guilt. Salvation is not just a courtroom acquittal, but a deliverance because of that declaration of righteousness. God delivers us through our being buried and raised with Jesus. When we're saved, we've been declared righteous, but we've also been transformed and taken from one ruler, sin, and we enter into living under the reign of God. And so to go back to our old master would be to live against the grain of everything new and real about our lives now that we've exited one realm and entered another. And so it's because of this change in rulers that Paul exhorts you so strongly to deny your old master and present yourself to God in righteousness. Grace not only forgives your sins, grace delivers you from the realm of sin. And so grace is a motivation to fight sin and not only a comfort when you do sin. I like the, Paul that, I like the language that Paul uses here. He says, present yourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. In other translations, um, that word present can be offer or yield. And so the idea is that you have a part in choosing how you will prepare yourself to be in the presence of your God and Father. And that's why this third point is, because you have been given life, take a hold of it. Because of what's been done to you, you should cultivate and nurture it. I mean, think about when you're going to a nice dinner party or a social event, which might be almost a year ago. <laughs> you don't just show up like you can now to video calls, in your sweats or without your hair done. You present yourself. You take time to make sure that what need, needs to be tidied up is attended to. You look in the mirror closely so that you can neat things up and make sure everything is in its place. And it's that same kind of a care and attention that we need to bring when it comes to preparing our lives to be an instrument of righteousness in the hands of God. And so I want to say in my experience, you know, there's kind of two ends of the spectrum here when it comes to Christians trying hard to present themselves to God. On the one hand, there are those who are new to all the speak of dying to sin and being alive to God. And they go all out. This is the passionate new Christian. And then on the other hand, there are those who can think back to the early years. Maybe it was like high school retreats and college ministry. And you're like, yeah, you know, I, I remember trying to do that hardcore Christian thing. <laughs> um, but I don't know, I, I got tired. It seemed like not a lot of progress was being made. And so I started walking 
instead of sprinting. And I want to say, you know, there's some wisdom to that of uh, not having a foolish zeal. But I think that most Christians, especially in our day and age, could use a revisiting of why fighting sin is something that doesn't take nearly as much mental space as it should. We could use a revisiting of where we need healing in our souls or a renewal in our mind to become fully committed again in our fight against sin. Paul says in Romans 12, later in this book, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. And so I don't want to pretend that I can diagnose or really do in this sermon all that needs to be done for us to get there. Um, But that's the journey we're on as we embark on a deepening of our spiritual disciplines. I know for myself, I've been there kind of at both ends of the spectrum. Um, After getting really like disillusioned with my own sin and uh, just not seeing the fruit I wanted to see, there was a very long period of my life where I still went to church. I still read the Bible. Um, I didn't live in like flagrant open sin that people would like discipline me for. But I kind of just slackened in how hard I tried to really read the Bible and pray. And it, it, takes, it, it took a long time to like realize every step of progress really has meaning in Christ. And you know, I'll say, like, I don't think any of us have it fully figured out. But my prayer is that you would be encouraged by what Paul has told us. Rather than a rigorous pursuit of godliness being contradicted by grace or being considered meaningless because of our ongoing fight with sin, our death and new life with Christ give us the foundation to say every step towards holiness is meaningful to God and powerfully realizes what he died to achieve. I know that while we're sheltering at home uh, and the normal rhythms of life have fallen off, it's even more difficult to keep our attention and concern on what truly matters. I feel like every week I have to kind of do a reset. (laughs) But I hope today's text is a lifeline. It's thrown out for anyone wondering why they should pursue holiness or how to keep going when it feels like sin clings so close to you. Behind your pursuit of holiness is the unstoppable plan of God to redeem us and to finally one day bring us out of both the power and presence of sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, yeah, thank you for the work you've done in us. I pray, God, that sometime we would take some time to, to celebrate what you've done. Lord, thank you, thank you for delivering us from the power of sin. And God, I pray that you'd meet people intimately in their agony, in their frustration with their sin, and really encourage them that you're for them, you're with them. You're their new master, and you want so badly from, for them to, to have freedom from sin. I pray all this in your son's name. Amen.